And welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garden. The holiday of Passover has concluded, and throughout the Jewish world, the cycle of Torah readings returns to its uh, normative pattern. This week in synagogue, the parasha is entitled Shmini. It begins with chapter 9 of Leviticus, the very first verse, and continues through Leviticus 11, verse 47. A summary before we look at one of the most uh, interesting stories in the entire Torah. In this week's Torah portion, God had commanded Moses to tell Aaron, that his sons would be bringing different offerings and specific rituals to be given in the tent of appointed meeting. Aaron and his sons were required to remain at the entrance of the tent of appointed meetings for seven days and nights. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel And Moses told Aaron to gather specific animal and grain offerings and bring them before God. They brought their offerings to the front of the tent of a appointed meeting. The entire community came forward and stood before the Lord. Moses said, according to the Torah, this is what God has commanded that you do so that the glory of God will reveal itself to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, as the Lord commands, come forward to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burn offering. Then sacrifice the people's offering for their atonement. Parenthetically, that will be the beginning of the traditions of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Aaron sacrificed the animals and lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then Aaron and Moses went inside the tent of appointed meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of God revealed itself to all the people. Fire went forth from before God and consumed the burnt offerings and fat parts on the altar. And the people saw and shouted for joy and fell on their faces. But then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, brought strange fire to God. And God consumed them, and they were dead. Moses said to Aaron, This is what will happen before the entire people of Israel. Do not leave this place in the sanctuary, for God's anointing oil is upon you. Then God spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no intoxicating wine when you were your sons, meaning the remaining sons, Enter the tent of appointed meetings so that you may not die. This is, according to the Torah, a law for all time throughout your generations to distinguish between the sacred and the profane, the contaminated, and the pure. The Torah portion now switches direction and introduces Mosaic Kashrut. Moses told Aaron and the remaining sons to make an offering to God. And therefore, 
God spoke to Moses and to Aaron, telling them to state to the following to the Israelite people, these are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves, and choose the cud that you may eat. The following animals who either choose the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, the rabbit, the hare, the pig. You shall not touch their flesh or eat of their carcasses. They are unclean to you. From the water, seas, and river, you may eat all creatures except that which does not have fins and scales, They are abomination to you, and you shall not eat of their flesh. And these you shall hold an abomination from among the fowl. They shall not be eaten, the eagle, the vulture, the kite, falcons and ravens of every variety, the ostrich, the seagull, and many varieties of hawk and owl, the pelican, the stork, the herons, the hoopy, and the bat all winged, swarming things that go upon four legs are an abomination to you. Only those insects that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground you may eat, such as locusts and critics and grasshoppers of every variety. And all other winged, swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination to you. All animals that walk on paws Among those that walk on fours are unclean to you. Also unclean are those living things that creep on the earth, such as the mole, the mouse, the lizards, crocodiles, and chameleons. Whoever touches anything unclean, whether directly by cloth or by container, they shall remain unclean until evening. And the Torah portion ends. You shall be holy, for all, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Well, it would be easy to speak about the laws of Kashrut. Many of you who listen on a regular basis know that these laws, as enunciated in this week's Torah portion, and the rabbinic interpretations of them that have emerged through the generations, still play a central part in the life of the Jewish people. But this morning, I want to speak about Aaron's two elder sons, Nadav and Abihu, who offer strange fire before God, which he commanded them not, and they die before God. The Torah portion tells us that Aaron is silent in face of this tragedy. It is a story that has led to numerous interpretations. It's one of the most tragic stories in the Torah. It is referred to on no less than four separate occasions. It turned a day that should have been a national celebration of the ordination of the priesthood into one of deep grief. Aaron bereaved could not speak at the, can- at the commandment of God A sense of mourning fell over the camp and the people. God had told Moses that it was dangerous to have the divine presence within the camp, as expressed in Exodus 33.3. 3. 
But even Moses could not have guessed that something as serious as this could happen. What did Adab and Abihu do wrong that precipitated God's anger? Now, this is one of those Torah portions in which there's an exceptionally broad range of interpretations offered by the ancient sages. Some say that they aspired to lead the people and were impatiently waiting for Moshe and Aaron to die. Other commentators say that their sin was that they never married, considering all women to be unworthy of them. Others attribute their sin to intoxication. Others, again, say that they did not seek guidance as to what they should do and what they were not permitted to do on this day. Yet another explanation is that they entered the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest was permitted to do. So the simplest explanation, without the interpretation of the rabbis, is the one given explicitly in the text. They offered strange fire which was not commanded. You might ask, why should they have done such a thing and why was it so serious an error? The explanation that makes the most sense psychologically is that they were carried away by the mood of the moment. They acted in a kind of ecstasy. They were caught up by the sheer excitement of the inauguration of the first collective house of worship in the history of Abraham's children. Their behavior was spontaneous. They wanted to do something extra, uncommanded to express their religious fervor. So what was wrong with spontaneity? Moses had acted spontaneously when he broke the tablets after the sin of the golden calf. Centuries later, David would act spontaneously when he danced as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. Neither of them was punished for their behavior. Although Michal did reprimand her husband David after his dance. But what made Nadav and Abihu deserve so severe a punishment? This requires some interesting consideration. Moses was a prophet. David was a king. But Nadab and Abihu were priests. Prophets and kings sometimes act spontaneously because they both inhabit the world of time. To fulfill their functions, they need a sense of history. They develop an intuitive grasp of time. They understand the mood of the moment and what it calls for. For them, today is not yesterday, and tomorrow will be different again. That leads them from time to time to act spontaneously, because that is what the moment requires. Moses knew that only something as dramatic as shattering the tablets would bring the people to their senses and convey to them how grave their sin was, the sin of worshiping the golden calf. David knew that dancing alongside the ark would express to the people a sense of the significance of what was happening. That Jerusalem was not, was about to become not just the political capital of the people of Israel, but also the spiritual center of the nation. These acts 
concepts of precisely judged spontaneity were essential in shaping the destiny of the Jewish people. But priests, according to the Torah, have a different role altogether. They inhabit a world that is timeless, ahistorical and worth in which nothing significant changes. The daily, weekly, and yearly sacrifices were always the same. Every element of the service of the tabernacle was bound by its detailed rules, and nothing of significance was left to the discretion of the priest. The priest was the guardian of order. It was the priest's job to maintain boundaries between secular and, sec and sacred, pure and impure, perfect and blemished, permitted and forbidden. His domain was that of the holy, the points at which the infinite and eternal enter the world of the infinite and mortal. As God tells Aaron in this week's parashah, you must distinguish between the sacred and the profane and between the unclean and clean. You must teach the Israelites all the laws which the Lord has appointed to them through Moses. The key verbs for the Kohanim were lahavdil, to distinguish, and lahav wrote, to teach. The Kohan, the priest, made distinctions, and taught the people to do likewise. The priestly vocation was to remind the people that there are limits. There is an order to the universe, and we must respect it. I suppose one could say, spontaneity has no place in the life of the priest or the service of the ancient temple. That was what Nadav and Avihu failed to honor, it might have seemed like a minor transgression, but it was, in fact, a negation of everything the tabernacle and the priesthood stood for. Limits. That is what the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden is about. Why would God go to the trouble of creating tree, two trees, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, from which human beings are forbidden to eat? Why tell the humans that the trees were and what their fruit could do? Why expose them to temptation? Who would not wish to have knowledge and eternal life? If they could acquire them by merely eating a fruit, why not? Why plant trees in a garden where the humans could not but help see them? Why put Adam and Eve to a test that they were unlikely to pass? The obvious answer is to teach them and to teach us that even in Eden, even in Utopia, even in Paradise, there are limits, there are certain things we can do and would like to do that we must not do. A classic example from another dimension is the environment. Jared Diamond has documented it in his books, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and Collapse. Two different books. Almost wherever human beings have set foot, they have left a trail of destruction in their wake. They have farmed lands to exhaustion and hunted animals to extinction. They have done so because they have not had embedded in their minds and habits the notion of limits. 
enhance the concept. Key to environmental ethics of sustainability, meaning limiting your exploitation of the Earth's resources to a point where they can renew themselves. A failure to observe those limits causes human beings to be exiled from their own Garden of Eden. We have been aware of threats to the environment and the dangers of climate change for a long time. Well, certainly since the 1970s, 50 years. Yet the measures humanity has taken to establish limits to consumption, pollution, and destruction of habitats and the like have for the most part been too little, too late, and are still argued by politicians. 2019 BBC survey of moral attitudes in Britain showed that despite the fact that a majority of people felt responsible for the future of the planet, this had not translated into action. 71% of people thought that it was acceptable to drive when it would be just as easy to walk. 65% of people thought it acceptable to use disposable plates and cups and utensils. I don't think that the numbers would be significantly different in North America. Christopher Lash, in the book entitled The True and Only Heaven, argued that the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment endowed us with the belief that there are no limits, that science and technology will solve every problem they create, and Earth will continue indefinitely to yield its boundary. Lash writes, and I quote, progressive optimism rests at the bottom on a denial of the natural limits on human power and freedom. And it can survive not for long in a world in which awareness of those limits has become inescapable. Forget limits and eventually we lose paradise. That is what the story of Adam and Eve warns in a remarkable book In his 1976 writing on inflation, the reigning error, William Reese Rogue waxed eloquent about the role of Jewish law in securing Jewish survival. It did so by containing the energies of the people. Jews are, he said, a people of electric energy, both of personality and mind. Nuclear energy, he says, is immensely powerful, at the same time means to be contained. He then writes, and I quote again, In the same way, the energy of the Jewish people has been enclosed in a different type of container, the law. This has acted as a bottle inside, which the spiritual and intellectual energy could be held only because it could be held has it been possible to make use of it. It has not been merely exploded or been dispersed. Jewish law has been harnessed as a continuous power. Contained energy can be a driving force over an infinite period. Uncontrolled energy is merely a big and usual destructive bang. In human nature, only disciplined energy is effective. That was true of the role of the priest, and it is the continuing role of Jewish law 
though there are, of course, expressions of limits, rules and laws and distinctions. In fact, throughout Jewish history, the laws have been discussed and argued about, modified, relaxed, and interpreted with regard to the time and place in which Jews lived. But through it all, Jews have understood that there were limits. Without limits, civilization can be as thrilling and short-lived as fireworks. To survive, they need to find a way of containing energy so that it lasts undiminished. That was the priest's role. And what Nadav and Abihu betrayed by introducing spontaneity where it does not belong, as Rhys Moog said, uncontrolled energy is merely a big and usually destructive bang. So we need to think, especially at times like this, when not only are our religious traditions challenged, but are very life-challenged, what limits mean. And our uncontrolled search for even greater affluence, we are endangering the future of the planet, and perhaps even our own health, as we sometimes continue to struggle against limitations that are placed upon us not just by religious authorities, but by secular authorities who seem to have our best interests at heart. Well, I could ask the question, why there are so many different explanations for what Nadab and Abihu's sin was. I've offered you one that is fairly well understood that they rebelled against the particular role of the priesthood with all its limitations. Sometimes we rebel against religious limitations, and we rebel against the responsibility of the priesthood. Now I want to switch gears for a moment and take you to another interpretation. Nestled between the laws and offerings and the laws of Kashrut is, as suggested, this narrative section in the book of Leviticus. It's an unusual narrative section. I've already indicated that it's a story of disobedient priests, a silent father, and the portrayal of a very severe god. The commentators, as I've already suggested, debate the very nature of the son's transgression, the appropriateness of their punishment, and the justice of the various characters' responses. Let us look first at Moses' response to his brother Aaron in Leviticus 10.3. This is what the Eternal meant by saying, through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain glory before my people. This is a cryptic oracle made stranger by the fact that nowhere in the Torah did God actually say this before. 
The closest statement is in Exodus 29:43, when God tells Moses, and there at the tent of meeting, I will meet with the Israelites and it shall be sanctified by my presence. A midrash, a story of commentary says, don't read the Hebrew as the kvodi, through my glory, but read it as bim kubadi, through my gloried one. Therefore Moses said to Aaron, Aaron, my brother, I knew that this house was to be sanctified through the beloved ones of the omnipresent, but I thought it would either be me or you. Now I see that they, your sons, are greater than either of us. In this interpretation, Nadab and Abihu were motivated by their overwhelming desire to be close to God. No longer perpetrators of a betrayal of biblical law, they are rather overcome with religious fervor. This is the approach of the early Midrash, known as Sifra, which states, overwhelmed, overwhelmed by religious fervor, fervor and joy on perceiving a new fire, they sought to redouble their love. Similarly, the 18th century Kabbalist Chaim Ibn Attar, or the Ora Achaim, writes in his commentary on this verse, they approached the supernatural out of their greatest love of the holy and thereby died. Thus they died by the divine kiss such as experienced by the perfectly righteous. The difference only is that the righteous die when the divine kiss approaches them, while Nadab and Abihu died by their approaching it. The death of Nadab and Abihu are linked both in the Torah itself and the later rabbis with the service of Yom Kippur, where the high priest does exactly what they did, burn incense in the Holy of Holies. However, the institution of Yom Kippur provides structure and boundaries, limits for that love. Thus, it would appear that our goal as worshipers is always to find the middle ground, the balance between the drunkenness of spiritual ecstasy and the sobriety of ritual and religious responsibility. Two different interpretations which take us to the same place. Walking a fine line between spontaneity, as the king and the prophet did it, or offering a set of limits that help us in our path to God. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day. You can hear a podcast of this week's show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom. Oh, 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 oh